Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Moderna has entered in the COVID-19 vaccination race. Health Canada saying it will ship their vaccine within 48 hours of Health Canada approval. When is that? Some people just won't get vaccinated no matter what the situation. How do they fit into the COVID-19 vaccination discussion? U.S. President Donald Trump has lost his attorney general, William Barr. How do you explain the timing? It's all coming up on a Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The first Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine has arrived in Canada. However, like driving and voting, kids don't get anything. I know, I know, I get it. Ugh. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! There you go. It is uh, 1211. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will get back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. All right. Uh, here we are Tuesday and more great news coming out of the vaccination world. The prime minister uh, just finishing up a press conference and uh, has said, and we're still waiting for the Moderna vaccine to be approved. Uh, and we're hearing that that uh, that could be approved uh, soon, uh, sooner than we thought. And uh, once it it is approved that uh, we have a deal for uh, within two days of approval, it will be uh, distributed. There's a deal for about 168, just over 168,000 uh, doses of the Moderna uh, vaccine. That's before the end of December. So, uh, again, we thought initially that wouldn't be approved until the new year. It now looks like it could happen actually before the end of December. And that will add another 168,000 uh, doses. And the great thing about the Moderna vaccination is that it is easier to distribute than the Pfizer, which has the very, very cold temperature issue. So uh, there you go. That's 168. And then the 249 that were promised before Christmas from Pfizer brings the total to 417, right? Roughly. And so that means about uh, 208,000 people uh, could be vaccinated before uh, the end of the year, which is great news. Also, the Prime Minister confirming that um, another 200,000 of the Pfizer doses uh, are on the way and will arrive uh, hopefully next week. And um, again, those are part of that initial 249,000 from from Pfizer. And again, so as we had mentioned before, once the uh, the other vaccinations slowly start to come online and are made available, this will certainly take uh, ease off the pressure of the limited supply that is out there and uh, the situation that Canada finds itself in. So anyway, good news uh, is that uh, the Moderna vaccination uh, hopefully is uh, is approved prior to the new year. And then with after that, uh, within two days after that, uh, the vaccinations will begin, which uh, is great news all around. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Eleanor Fish is with us, Canada Research Chair in Women's Health and Immunology and Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Absolutely fine, thank you. So this is like getting an extra scoop of ice cream, is it not? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, and it's it's one of many that uh, Canadians can look forward to to uh, receiving, you know, the, 
There's a, a diverse portfolio of vaccines that were reviewed, considered, doses, how they were going to be stored, and based on that, uh, Canadians can look forward to many different vaccine options. So initially, uh, it had been thought that this vaccination, uh, and we're talking about the Moderna one, would not be available until, and even get approval until after uh, the the new year. Are you surprised to hear the Prime Minister announce that uh, that that? Uh, I guess it's obvious that once approval is given, we'll be we'll be able to roll within forty eight hours. But that could all happen prior to uh, the new year. So personally, no, I'm not surprised. So one of the things uh, we do as you know, the various task forces that the federal government has engaged is um, be very proactive in looking at the scientific publications that come out on the clinical trials for these vaccines. And uh, you know, soon as what's been happening is that as the trials have been ongoing and data accumulating, so Health Canada has received that data on an ongoing basis. So rather than wait till complete end of the trial and then do their due diligence, they've been doing the due diligence on an ongoing basis. So am I surprised? No. I think we should see with a number of the vaccines that as these trials come to conclusion and the data is finalized, we will see that um, hopefully Health Canada, once they've done their due diligence and feel comfortable with the data, will approve them. And then... You've heard from Moderna. They made a statement uh, several weeks ago that as soon as Health Canada approves, they will start shipping uh, vaccines. And, you know, we, we've talked about this since the chatter of vaccines started. And this has really been a game changer, hasn't it been, uh, Doctor? Where the fact that the world cooperation, that everybody is basically getting this information at the same time. You know, if, if one uh, if one office uh, uh, okays it or approves it, then soon after others will follow. It's just a case of each one's system is a little bit different. But it really has been unprecedented the way all of these institutions have worked together to keep everybody pretty much on the same page all the way through. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very heartening that uh, in 2020 and leading into 2021, there's this global network of of scientists and, and public health people and politicians who are working together. So obviously this vaccination, uh, a, a lot different than the Pfizer in the sense that it does not require uh, the, the extremely cold temperatures that mm-hmm. the Pfizer vaccination does. In the end, is this not the better value? Is this not the more efficient product because it isn't as fragile as the Pfizer? So um, better or worse, I don't know, but... Again, when the vaccine task force was looking at the various options, based on the fact that there were would be a limited number of jurisdictions across Canada that could accommodate freezing at minus 70, so the recommendations to procure the number of doses were made. So in actual fact, from the Moderna vaccine, the recommendation was to accure more doses that would be able to be delivered across the country than right. the Pfizer vaccine. So... Not that one is better than the other or right. pricing is better than the other. It's really a matter of ensuring that every single individual in Canada who chooses to accept these life-saving vaccines will have access to them. And in this case, obviously, Pfizer appears it was first. So that, that's why there's so much chatter around that. Absolutely. Front runner. And that was, you know, uh, that was the reason that uh, we're getting all this, you know, exciting news. Yeah.
So your thoughts on uh, how this appears to be setting up, as uh, as we mentioned, 168,000 before uh, December, and that's, again, pending approval from Health Canada, as always, uh, and they hope to release this uh, 48 hours uh, after uh, approval. Um, that is part of, or no, that in addition to the 249,000 with Pfizer. So that brings us to about 417,000 uh, doses uh, before the new year, enough for roughly 208,000 people. Your thoughts on where that leaves us uh, as we head into January? Well, it, uh, it, it's very heartening if we can protect those most vulnerable and those you know, healthcare workers also who are frontline to prevent them from uh, getting infected. That's great. And as I said, there are others um, that are coming up very close behind. So we have the AstraZeneca, we have... Um, Johnson and Johnson. I mean, there are a number. We've got a portfolio here, uh, and as soon as they are reviewed and approved by Health Canada, there's enough vaccine options that you know every single person who chooses to get vaccinated in Canada, um, in fact, it's for the complete population that they would have more than one vaccine option. So. Mm-hmm. Even if some of them fail in terms of meeting the criteria for Health Canada approval, we will have sufficient vaccine to cover every single person in Canada. Timing has been timing has been the concern here, as you know. You know, the Prime Minister mentioned uh, a, a couple of weeks ago that we would be uh, behind, or you know, sometimes behind others who were were producing uh, the vaccination. Your thoughts on the timeline of this? It appears, obviously, with this announcement from Moderna, and as you're saying, as more of them become, uh, you know, come on uh, online, more will uh, obviously uh, be be available but the timeline was very much a concern over the last couple of weeks your thought as we move forward into january on how many are getting vaccinated and at what time well i think we need to reassure your listeners that this concern that because we didn't have the manufacturing capability we were going to be way back in the line is obviously not true i mean mm-hmm. you can see how quickly because of the contracts that were signed ahead of approval um, we have access to these vaccines and they're being shipped. And, you know, this our global world has shrunk. So to ship from Belgium to Toronto takes or to, to Vancouver or to Montreal takes no time at all. So really, there are no delays. Uh, we will get these vaccines as they are approved very rapidly. So again, to reassure your listeners that there's not going to be a wait. The only wait is that we need to be confident that the, these vaccines are safe, they've met Health Canada approvals as we do for every life-saving vaccine. And as soon as that happens, within hours, days, they will be shipped to Canada because we have these contracts in place. Again, uh, what was the concern was if, you know, we look and we see other countries like the UK or the United States who are finished their vaccination process by, say, spring, and we're waiting till uh, the end of of September, that 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 was obviously of great concern. Do you see that? Because right now that's the government's goals, 40 to 50 percent of Canadians vaccinated by summer. 
and most of Canadians, so that would be over 50%, 60% uh, vaccinated by the end of September. Is that a fast enough timeline for you? Um, are there other, are, are there other countries that are, you know, maybe three, four, five months ahead of us on completing this? Who knows? And again, nobody has a crystal ball. So originally, you know, the prime minister made the statement that, you know, we, we wouldn't start vaccinating till the first quarter of 2021. Well, here we are. We're already vaccinating. Again, I, I don't think we need to be concerned about timelines. As soon as these vaccines are approved, we will get them. Whether we're going to have the population or, or 40 to 50 percent, you know, vaccinated by September, by June, by May, you know, it's everything is in place to be able to distribute and vaccinate as soon as they're available. This right. And, and again, everybody, everybody agrees that, you know, as soon as they're available, uh, approved by Health Canada, they will they will be they will be distributed. It, what, what the concern is, is you know, how many will we get? Do you get a box of them? Do you get several boxes of them? I think that's the concern in how quickly we can get. We know as soon as we get them, we will be administering them. But the point is, is can we, you know, can we administer them to a hundred people? Can we administer them to a thousand people? I think it's those numbers that are, that, that so, still have people so a little, a little concern. So let me jump in here again and say we have contracted for not just thousands, hundreds of thousands, and in fact, millions of doses of the various vaccines. Um, how they will be shipped and how quickly they'll be shipped, you know, your crystal ball is as good as mine. We have mm-hmm. these contracts in place and commitments. So this will happen. And the timeline, um, you know, I'm very optimistic that uh, there's, yeah. there's an incredible pressure to do this. So nobody's going to be holding anything up. Approvals ship. The vaccine companies, they took a huge financial risk to go ahead and manufacture these vaccines ahead of approval. So you can reassure your listeners that these vaccine companies are absolutely want to ship these and get their money back. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you one more question. And, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not quite clear on this, but we we're watching Dr. Bo- uh, Bonnie Henry from BC earlier uh, yesterday, I believe it was, and their uh, doses were arriving. And she was saying that she didn't feel comfortable leaving them in a fridge when they should be in people's arms. So rather than, for example, say if you got 4,000 doses, vaccinating 2,000 and then keeping those for the three weeks for the second approval, she was going to put all of the doses in on the arms, confident that the next batch would arrive and that she would uh, have enough for those three-week, two installments over the three weeks. Your thoughts on that? Well, again, you know, the, the, the... There's there's two different thoughts on this. One, exactly as as Dr. Henry has indicated, let's just get everything in people's arms. Mm -hmm. The reality is that first dose affords sun protection, okay? But it's nowhere near as effective as two doses. And we know that with, you know, vaccinating a small number of people, that's not going to afford herd community for everybody. And the, the efficacy is somewhat limited. She's made the decision to go ahead that route. Others will make the decision that they will actually wait for, you know, hold back on distributing to everybody, but give two doses because then they'll have greater than 90% effectiveness mm-hmm. and be confident that more doses are shipping, so there's going to be more 
two doses for everybody. So it's, you know, it's a decision which is being made by every province. Which is the better decision? You know, again, you can speculate. The point is... So you don't necessarily need your two doses from the same batch, per se. No, no, not from the same batch. You'll only get about, I think it's about 40 to 50% protection with one dose. Right. And that's why you have the booster, because it gives you 95% protection. All right, there you go. Uh, Boy, it couldn't be better explained than that. Dr. Eleanor Fish is with us, Canada Research Chair in Women's Health and Immunology and a Professor of Immunology with the University of Toronto, bringing some clarity. Uh, Moderna announcing that once it is approved in Canada, 48 hours, the distribution will start. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, Be well yourself, and uh, everyone should be very positive about this news before the new year. It's great. Eleanor, thanks so much. Much appreciated. Bye-bye. All right, let's bring in our next guest, Thomas Tenkate, Professor and Director, School of Occupational and Public Health uh, at Ryerson, and is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thanks, uh, Scott. Very very good. Thanks very much for your time. How concerned are you about uh, vaccine hesitancy here? We're starting to see these vaccinations roll in. At one time, we were concerned about a timeline, and we weren't uh, we weren't getting enough fast enough. And now uh, people are going, "Okay, it's here." Uh, I'm not sure if uh, people are hesitant or they're just happy to have someone else uh, do it first. What are your thoughts? Uh, Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a you know for all vaccines, there there is that. the issue of vaccine hesitancy, what is basically, you know, people sort of not really sort of or wondering about should I have it, should I not have it? And so whereas, you know, def- definitely for, for the this COVID vaccine, I think, uh, you know, one of the aspects that, that people are sort of wondering about is, you know, given the sort of compressed timelines for approvals, you know, some people are saying, well, you know, has it undergone all the necessary things that it should to 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 give us that confidence that it is safe or not and whereas i I would say to people you know i i believe that uh the process the canadian government has gone through is uh you know is is top rate and and they've made sure that that all the necessary uh steps have gone through so so i think people should uh you know, believe that the the, the uh, vaccines, the ones that will be getting approved, are going to be safe. And so, so uh, you know, if if you want to take that out of you know that that's one aspect. The other aspect is, you know, some people just uh, you know are nervous about having a vaccination, uh, and uh, you know they worry about side effects. Uh, you know, and so so that you know definitely you know. Uh, for any vac- vac- vaccination, you you are going to have a uh, you know a small number of people who are going to have a reaction, and that that is that's you know known. But but from a public health perspective, we would you know we sort of have to balance the you know sort of small adverse effects or, or the adverse effects in a small number of people with the broader good of of uh, you know uh, the safe uh, you know sort of safety and and the benefits for the rest of the community so so it is a very it's very much a balance and that's one of the processes that uh you know health canada are going through when they're they're looking at uh the the approval for for the uh, new vaccines is are the benefits substantially outweighing weighing any risks and um 
obviously these vaccines here will not be made mandatory however you know it's been suggested that you may need to show proof of a vaccination in order to participate in certain events or even do part of your job or or such how how are we going to balance that because obviously you know it's nothing it's a, a vaccine that is not mandatory yet on the other hand if you're in an area that's sensitive uh to the issue then obviously you may need one yeah yeah it's it's definitely again that issue of you know balancing sort of someone's right to you know object to having it versus you know uh their their ability then to participate in various activities and so uh it it is a uh it is an, an interesting sort of debate i think you know what what normally happens with these sorts of uh issues is that that uh you know with with vaccinations we we you, people might have heard about the, the the term herd immunity what is basically the number of people or the proportion of the population that that have immunity to a particular uh uh pathogen you know and so so it means so what it means is that if someone uh, the the higher the herd immunity, the less number of people uh, in the community who aren't who who don't have immunity. So so and so there's less people who are either carrying the organism who can transmit it, and there's less people who can who are vulnerable to getting it. And so so one of the issues will be you know is uh, at what point will we have a sufficient herd immunity? To say, well, that you know, it's in essence, it's okay that there's a proportion of the population that 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 don't have it, because because basically enough of us have it, have immunity, so it uh, means that the spread is 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 very, the risk of spreading it is is very low. Then, so obviously so you that, have. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. So I think you know initially. You know, it, it, there's probably going to it's going to cramp people's style in regard to potential things that they may or may not want to do. Whereas I think my sense is that once we have sufficient uh, number of people who are vaccinated, you know, some of those some of those things, you know, we mightn't uh, might need to be as as uh, sort of concerned about because of having that that you know higher level, you know, the relevant level of herd immunity what i i think for this uh for this we're talking something in the 60 something percent range whereas for a lot of the uh you know the other other diseases particularly childhood diseases when we like to try and get in the 80 to 90 percent range of 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 people being vaccinated so 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 that means that if if that's the case then then you know it means that we we have the potential to get reach that herd herd immunity level Within, you know, and, and, and allow uh, still a reasonable proportion of the population not to be uh, immunised, and uh, and and then overall, we 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 you know we we would have controlled the, controlled the spread of the of the of the uh, disease. There will always be anti-vaxxers out there, those that just will not uh, put the shot in the arm. But but is this that cut and dry where it's the anti-vaxxers versus the vaxxers, or is this different because it's new, it's something that was done relatively quickly? Um, do people look at vaccines the same way they look at flu shots or getting administered other medications? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, de- I think there's definitely, you know, a range of factors going to play into it. You know, you... <clears throat> Like you say, is there, there's going to be a proportion of the population 
who are just not going to want to do it no matter what because they're just totally against uh, vaccinations yeah. for, for a whole range of reasons. So, so there's that group. But then there's also going to be a group that are sort of saying, well, I'm not sure if I really want to get this one because I don't know if it's gone through the required processes. You know, is it really safe or not? Uh, whereas I, I would say to those people, you know, based on the processes, I understand that things have gone through. Uh, you know, it is it is safe. Like the processes have been much quicker than than normal, but that's because the government specifically put in place uh, reasonably early on a, uh, a, a more streamlined and, and uh, yeah. a quicker process. You know, so so I think you know uh, there's you know uh, and ultimately you know everyone is uh, going to perceive the risk differently based on your your own uh, experiences, and and we talk about that as being sort of risk perception and and we and, and our risk perception of things is really is very strongly based on on our own experiences and 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 uh, you know and and sometimes you know that's also based on you know my my perception of the risk is different for if it's me or if I'm going to get it or versus say my children are going to get it often you're going to be more cautious about your children versus yourself and or if it's you know someone else versus myself so so there there are those pers- perspectives you know so some people might say well I'll take it but I don't really want my kids to take it you know, to, to get that vaccinated. So, so I think that there's, there's going to be a whole range of uh, reasons uh, that people might, might uh, look at this and say, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I want to do it. Whereas I suppose my, my, you know, what I'd say is that I, you know, everything I've read and what I've, I've seen uh, says that, you know, the government has made sure that the, the standards uh, uh, that a normal, normal vaccine will go through for, yeah. for approval it, it are going that you know th- these vaccines for for COVID have gone through that same process, but be, because they've been able to prioritise and focus, uh, you know the the uh, the government officials, you know they've been able to focus on it. And and one of the things is you know normally they would they would uh, want all the, all the paperwork submitted once everything's done. Yeah. Uh, whereas in yeah, this it's case, all been a streamlined process where everybody's yeah, kind of yeah. finding it out at the same time. And that, and yeah. that's certainly been going to be a game changer much, uh, uh, for long after the COVID-19 pandemic, which is great to see. Thomas Tenkate has been with us, professor and director, School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson. Thomas, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah. Thanks very much, Scott. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, obviously, what has been a massive issue in all of this is that the Pfizer vaccine, which really is is the first one uh, to be granted approval and the first one uh, into arms, uh, it has to be stored, obviously, at very, very cold temperatures, which has made uh, uh, transporting this from point A to point B, C, D, and whatever uh, a lot more complicated, but also... Because this is such a valuable commodity, security has been an issue, something you may not think about when you're talking about vaccination. Uh, To talk more about that aspect of this whole process, let's bring in David Hyde, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. He is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Been a while since we talked. Great to talk to you again. Yeah, you too, Scott. So, again, we certainly know about the logistics of this vaccine in the sense that it has to be transported in cold temperatures, and that presents a challenge for those moving this around. But what about security? How huge a commodity is this vaccine? 
Well, yeah, Scott, there's definitely some interest um, from the, I'm going to call it criminal actors, possible kind of um, nation states like the Russians, etc., have been, have been uh, activities have been occurring predominantly in the U.S., focused on their distribution network for the cold chain for the transportation of this vaccine. Look, this is, it is a very valuable commodity. We're in a mass global scramble. And, and criminals and other disruptive actors, Scott, that, that they look for this kind of thing. They gauge the value of something based on the clamoring um, for it in local areas, in national areas or globally. So this is very highly valuable, this vaccine. Uh, there's only a certain amount to go around. A lot of people want it and need it. And then there's going to be a market for people to try to divert it, the potential for there to be criminal groups or rogue nation states that want to have a hand in tr- trying to generate th- money for themselves, of course, by taking advantage of this rollout. So have you heard of threats or concerns already in this process? Uh, very definitely reported in the States. Like, like for a few months now, there's been a lot of um, cyber security threats that have manifested just against the vaccines in general. This research, Scott, is very, very valuable. The Pfizer being the first group to market, it's a massive economic boon to them. And, and so there's interest um, uh, out there in many fraternities, including nation states, Russia, China, are some of the states that have been mentioned where the U.S. authorities have good evidence that they've been making efforts to hack into uh, contractors, uh, emails and networks and computer systems, government computer systems, there was the European Medicines uh, Agency was hacked into and some of the Pfizer research data on the COVID-19 vaccine was read and was consumed by a malevolent type group. So we've seen a lot of this attention, Scott, and it's only now in the last few days, we've seen a very serious one in the U.S., a Texas-based company, it's a cybersecurity firm, actually, uh, that, that has uh, been uh, the victim's of a very sophisticated hack. They have 300,000 global clients, 400 out of the 500, Fortune 500 companies, major government um, um, departments in the US and elsewhere. And, and this hack has been really very, very high level. And they're monitoring emails and, and kind of watching things go through. And it's all in and around the COVID-19 vaccine. So over and above, uh, you know, because people may think, well, this is a delivery issue. You have to make sure you have security on the ground. It's almost like, a, you know, an armored car delivering this stuff from place to place to place. But this is even before uh, the product is even made. This is cyber stuff that's going on behind the scenes. What about the physical policing of this product once it arrives on the ground? Yeah, I mean, and, and that again, Scott, just as important as the logistics, I mean, you know, the, the quality concerns about keeping the product frozen, et cetera, through the supply chain, the physical security of it is also mission critical. You know, so we have to worry about it from the moment. I mean, we, we, it can't be tampered with. So our physical security, as far as Canadians go, our government cares about it right from the factory abroad where it's manufactured. We need to have our hands around the full supply chain in terms of what we call chain of custody or chain of control. There's got to be a physical sign-off and a handoff everywhere this vaccine goes, and it must be reviewed inventory to make sure that no one's tampered with the seals that are put on the enclosures that enclose these vaccines. Then we're going we're gonna to have 
things like GPS device monitoring devices, Scott, on these vaccine packages so that when they arrive in Canada, now they're going to be distributed to various parts of the country where there'll be, um, be it a pharmacy or whatever delivery system for it. So now we have to have the tracking for all of these different um, groupings of vaccines that are being transported within Canada. That transportation would be, uh, you know, very often secure. Again, tr train drivers, chain of custody uh, in vehicles that are appropriate to transfer it. And there's go that's going to be tracked electronically. There's physical security around these things. And then when it arrives at the distribution center, Scott, where they're probably going to stage it from there into the pharmacies, there's a whole layer of security at the DC, the distribution center level, to make sure there's no... Uh, no one can, can compromise the, the products. There's no theft or there's no other uh, issues there. And then from there, this, it's called last mile delivery to go from the distribution center out to the individual pharmacies, et cetera. And that, again, is another area that needs to be tracked, secured. You know, you, you can't leave a, a delivery vehicle with a load of vaccines parked on the side of the road. It needs to be delivered <laughs> straight to the end uh, um, location and there needs to be physical security. Even in the pharmacies, they'll need to have good level of security around those those vaccines, Scott, because they're just so valuable. Yeah, that's another another great point. Like uh, the actual pharmacy, if that's the the point of distribution, I mean, how do we know they're secure overnight from day to day to day? Uh, also, we also saw with this, David, that uh, the the Canadian vaccinate uh, the Canadian vaccines arrived from Belgium. Uh, I understand they went from Belgium to Germany, and then maybe from Germany to Kentucky, and then uh, a UPS distribution uh, points beyond that. Uh, now, obviously, it's UPS and FedEx that are that are involved in trans transporting this around uh, North America. How complicated is it when you bring those companies into it as well, or are they so secure in their own systems that, that that's just another level of, of comfort? Well, definitely those are the kind of groups, Scott, that you want to have involved, given that they are used to, it's not just security of the shipments, but it's the tracking of them. The tracking becomes so important. One of the things, Scott, that I'm a little concerned about with kind of the news in Canada over the last few days, it seems we're a bit behind in terms of our electronic capability of tracking all of these vaccines. When they arrive, where they go, the, the shelf life of them, um, the, you know, the movements of them. You know, we, we don't have a good electronic healthcare and medicinal tracking system in this country. We have one, but it, it's been plagued with problems since the beginning. And only, I think, eight of the provinces and territories are currently signed on to it. It's called Panorama. So my concern a little bit, Scott, is the government is just now putting out a request for proposals or very any day now to upgrade that electronic tracking and tracing system for traceability of the vaccine for COVID. They put out putting out an, an, a call for submissions from people to create that or to adjust the current system. That's a little bit worrying, given that we are looking at having millions of vaccines ultimately flowing into 2021. Every individual vaccine has to be tracked from source, from the manufacturer, all the way through to, to injection, uh, you know, because they have all, as you know, have varying shelf lives. They have varying uh, requirements around them, Scott, and, and all of that, documentation and those electronic data records need to be in place. Think of this for a second, Scott. 
if there was an adverse reaction to a vaccine, we need to trace back the exact mm. batch of vaccine that came from, right from the pharmacy or the, or the medical clinic where, where it was administered. It needs to be tracked back through batch lot numbers, et cetera, et cetera, so that the company that manufactured it could isolate that batch and see, was there something different with that? Is that the reason for the adverse reaction? Or did it, did it fall below a certain temperature for a very minor amount of time? So these are all very, very critical pieces. And it's a little bit concerning that Canada doesn't have, you know, isn't more ahead of the game when it comes to having that traceability electronic system kind of ready to receive the vaccine. So that is once the FedExes and the UPSs have done their jobs and brought it here and tracked it, then once it gets into uh, Health Canada systems and such, uh, then what happens to it? Where, where does it go? What batches go where? Just basic uh, inventory type of stuff, right? It really is. It's, it's called track and trace or traceability in the pharmaceutical world. And it's very critical that these kind of drugs like this that have potential scot for adverse reaction, they, we don't want them to be diverted into the wrong hands and we don't want them to cause medical distress if a, a batch of that vaccine falls out of temperature. As we know, these are supposed to be deep freeze, mm. some of them. It depends on, on the vaccine. So it's critical that all of this is tracked and traced through the life cycle of this vaccine, each, each batch of vaccine. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, the government needs to know and their records need to say that um, every administration of this vaccine, we know exactly its history, well, where it went and which ports of call it went and who signed off on it and, and how we made sure of its integrity. And that is a critical piece here. And again, you know, I, I think the Canada's done a, a pretty good job in, in, in many respects of, of getting at the front of the queue. Unfortunately, we're not getting a lot of vaccine initially. And we need to do more work to be prepared to take a, a, a big uptick in vaccine administration, Scott, in 2021. Is this perhaps one of the weakest links in the chain, then? Is this system to monitor this and to follow this? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it is, you know, there's two, there's two significant challenges. One is having the infrastructure in place through the supply chain to support deep freeze or frozen Products. I mean, in Canada, we have cold chain. A lot of pharmaceuticals are refrigerated, but the, 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 the free, freezer chain is quite unusual. Even our biggest pharmaceutical distributors, Scott, have a very limited amount of deep freeze storage. So this is, that's one aspect that needs to be ramped up very quickly. It is being right now. We know that. And the second piece, in my view, is the electronic tracking and tracing right from inception right through to delivery of the drug and adverse reactions after, we do not have a national electronic system that covers that end-to-end right now. It's a little bit piecemeal. It is not a networked across the whole country. And, and now we're adding a whole new dimension. The complexities of this deep frozen vaccine is unprecedented. So we are now loading that onto fairly rickety electronic systems that have been a little bit problematic in their current iteration, now we're going to ramp up with a very complex rollout that we've never done before, and, and we're going to need to do this on new infrastructure. Um, and, and again, it, it all has to happen, Scott. The government's doing the right thing, but there's, it's, there's lots of risk involved here, and we're doing it at a fast pace. And um, you know, the, the virus is intensifying. 
There's a need, a need to, um, to do this as soon as possible. So there's lots of convergence of pressure and risk. And when that happens, unfortunately, sometimes mistakes can be made. Uh, obviously, we've talked many times on this show about how COVID-19 over the last 10 months it, it has literally changed the way we do so many things, if not everything. And we've also talked about how once this is all over and the recovery starts, that a lot of those systems will be in place. We've certainly seen whether it whether it's education, with technology, uh, whether it was uh, health systems, that some of the weaknesses that have already always been there are now just more amplified under this global pandemic uh, situation. Can you see with regards to this sort of thing in these tracking systems that you're talking about, uh, we're going to see an overhaul of all of this stuff post-COVID-19 and, and better systems put in place? Well, I, I, I think we are necessarily so. I think we're going to land on that when it comes to the Canadian um, systems that need to be interoperable between provinces and between the federal government. And that, that's not fully in place now. That has to be in place for COVID-19 vaccines. So we will see those improvements made, Scott. We're also going to see things like the idea of computer security and cybersecurity with so much work now being done at home because of COVID-19 and things like this vaccine, the criticality of it and, and, and governments now looking more at cybersecurity. I do believe that that will become more of a focus. And I do think that, you know, as we move forward, the idea of securing the virtual world the electronic world that we live in that we very often just take for granted. I believe that is going to become more important, Scott, more of a priority for governments and private organizations and, and people in general. And that's only a good thing because I, I've long thought and, and held, the, held the concern that most people don't understand how vulnerable they are when it comes to the electronic and the virtual world, the internet, uh, computer networks, and it's amazing how vulnerable we all are and companies and governments are. Uh, and this might be a bit of a wake up call to that to a degree, Scott. And, you know, when you think about it, you talk about uh, the examples you're using within tracing and, and the security around this vaccination uh, and, and the value of that uh, all over the world. Plus, you think of all the programs that have gone on and whether it's a CERB or any of these uh, funding relief funding measures that have been in place. This is all just an opportunity for those bad actors, as you called them. It absolutely is, Scott. Unfortunately, we've had this chat before, criminals work just as hard at their careers as your listeners do on theirs and you do on yours, mm. etc. So they are looking for the next opportunity. They're looking for what's valuable, what's vulnerable, how they can access it, how they can dupe people, how they can catch people at their weakest vulnerabilities. These are all things that's in the criminal psyche. And this is a prime example of something that we all know is critically important to, to global um, you know, progress and movement forward. But criminals see this as an opportunity, and they will try to intervene wherever they can. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates, talking about the security risks and challenges involved in a global pandemic, specifically with delivering a vaccine. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. My pleasure. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's head down to the United States and find out what's happening. Oh, look, U.S. Attorney General William Barr, one of Donald Trump's uh, staunchest allies, stepping down before Christmas. The president has announced, announced this actually in a tweet at the exact same time that uh, Joe Biden's uh, election was confirmed, I guess. Barr's term due to end January 20th when uh, uh, Mr. Trump leaves office. Tensions between the two flared when uh, Attorney General Barr said there was no evidence of widespread uh, fraud in November's election. Uh, Joining us now, Reggie Giacchini, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So I guess the big question is, was he fired or did he step down? How did this all work? Well, look, White House aides say that he uh, resigned his position, although the timing is questionable given the fact that it's just been a couple of weeks since he came out and said the Department of Justice found no instances of election fraud that obviously sparked a public feud between uh, the White House and the Department of Justice. Uh, and behind closed doors, uh, White House aides and advisors say the president has been musing about relieving William Barr from his duties. So, you know, whether or not you say he resigned or whether you put air quotes behind and in front of the word resignation uh, it is just kind of, you know, another mark uh, in the final few weeks of the Trump administration. So obviously, um, whether who who knows who actually pulled the trigger here, but it seems that uh, with the confirmation of the Biden uh, election, that sort of sealed the deal. So either at that time, Barr said, I'm going to resign if this happens, or the president said, if that happens, he's gone. Uh, talk about the timing of this. Well, I mean, look, you know, the president could have said resign or you're fired or this could have been, uh, you know, a mutual or uh, amicable kind of uh, deal between the two men. Uh, But look, as as the attorney general over the last couple of weeks has come into the crosshairs of the president, especially when it comes to uh, election fraud, it's worth pointing out that in the goodbye letter that was uh, penned by the attorney general and released yesterday, it says that the DOJ is going to continue looking into uh, potential uh, bouts yeah. of fraud, even though we know it simply doesn't exist. Uh, but we also you know, know that William Barr was somebody who towed the president's line over the last couple of years, up to and including just a few months ago, when he actively used force to try and clear the grounds in front of the White House for the president to go and do that photo op during the riots uh, in May and June. So uh, they did have a good working relationship. It simply may have been the last straw. Uh, when the president was trying to use the Department of Justice once again as his own Department of Justice. So where does this leave Donald Trump? Um, is this does he have any uh, traction left with the Republican Party? Well, I mean, it, it, it's possible. You know, it, it's unclear what we're going to see the president do with the Department of Justice uh, in the next 36 ish days until the inauguration does. He tried to pressure the uh, the incoming and acting attorney general to potentially install some kind of, you know, um, special counsel to uh, open up an investigation or push forward an investigation into Hunter Biden. Uh, but this, you know, it, it this is just a continuation of what we've seen with President Trump. And we've seen the Republicans line up behind the president each and every time uh, somebody and a leading member of his cabinet. Uh, is either shown the door or finds the door on their own. You know, there's still a majority of Republicans, especially in the House, that refuse to acknowledge Joe Biden's win, although we are seeing uh, a break in the Senate. Just a couple of hours ago, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, he officially recognized uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as the incoming administration before the president has done it, 
but not after uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin did it earlier today or late last night. It, with uh, with Trump firing people like Barr and I believe it was his defense secretary a few weeks ago, is this just not creating more work for himself? Well, I mean, look, it's creating a little bit more work for him and that he has to try and find somebody to put in an acting position. But what it does is kind of create a nightmare scenario for the incoming administration, because you now have discourse at the highest levels of the cabinet uh, in trying to pass along communication between the current administration and the transition team. Uh, so it really does just try to kind of shake up the ground and give uh, you know a rocky start for Joe Biden once he's sworn in at 1201 uh, on January 20th. Uh, look, we also we often find that at the end of a presidential term, they kind of try to get done what they couldn't get done over the last four years. And the president has tried to use the Department of Justice uh, to his own betterment, despite the fact that they are supposed to be an independent agency, uh, you know, outside of the White House. Uh, this is simply just, you know, what we've seen Trump do over the last four years, continuing to do what he does. How much traction does Donald Trump still have with the American people? And is this just about fundraising, raising more money until he's out? It's a good question, uh, because the president is making um, a boatload of money off of the American public uh, and notably off of his own supporters. Each and every time we see these uh, emails come out from the Trump campaign or at least from the Trump legal team, uh, it's asking for donations. And some of that money is going to pay off uh, the lawsuits and legal battles that they've been in for the last couple of months. But also they're raising money for the Republican Party. They're bringing uh, Donald Trump further into the trenches of the Republican Party. Uh, and this is important for him. Look, 70 plus million people voted for Donald Trump. Uh, and a majority of those people are angry at the fact that he lost this election or, as they believe, had this election stolen from him because of fraud. So the longer the president slams his fist down uh, and says that this was a fraudulent election, that he lost this election uh, because it was taken away from him, the more it's going to anger up and rile up that base of his. So he may not have the majority of the country, but tens of millions of people who vote for you uh, is still something to hold on to. Uh, last question. We've only got a few seconds left. Obviously, yesterday, the confirmation of Biden. We heard before that the Supreme Court not willing to hear any more of these cases or hear these cases. Is there a path forward? I mean, it must be incredibly narrow if 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 nothing at all at this point. Look, it's a done deal. The Electoral College voted yesterday. They certified uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, as the rightful winners of this election, barring any kind of uh, defection from the Democrats in the House when the uh, Congress convenes on January 6th. It's nearly impossible for any of these results to be overturned. And on January 20th, there will be a new president walking into the White House. Reggie Cicchini has been with us, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Watch tonight on Global 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.